Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran. And this podcast is my way of sharing advice from the most creative songwriters and composers I can find. I'm excited to bring you this episode with Josh Wilson, who you might remember from the Merry Questmas episode. Josh shared his epic story about trying to find a fortune cookie in Taiwan. So I recommend going back and listening to that part of the Questmas episode if you haven't. You can find that and all the other Composer Quest episodes at ComposerQuest.com. I hope some of you have taken up the challenge I posed in Composer Quest Quest number 7, where I asked you to write a piece of music for a valentine. So if you ended up doing that, I'd love to hear how it went. Send me your music, too, if you want, your PDF or MP3 or MIDI to charlie at ComposerQuest.com. And I hope you have a good Valentine's Day. One other special announcement here. You can now become an official patron of ComposerQuest. I have a site set up at patreon.com slash charlie. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And Patreon's an interesting alternative to something like Kickstarter because it's geared more towards people who do episodic material. So here's how it would work if you decided you really like the show and want to become a patron of Composer Quest. You could donate $1 per podcast episode, and I would give you a random shout-out on one or more episodes. Or if you want to donate $2 per podcast episode, I would give you those shout-outs. Plus, I would give you any MP3s of my music that I talk about on the show. So any of the Charlie Shameless self-promotion or Charlie's Music Production Lesson tracks. And keep in mind, Patreon is a really flexible system. You can have a monthly limit on what you want to donate, and you can always cancel your payments at any time. It's really just out of the goodness of your heart if you want to help out Composer Quest. One reason I'm asking for these donations is it just takes a lot of time to make this podcast, usually around 12 hours for each half-hour episode. And as many of you can relate to, I tend to spend so many hours on creative projects that I'm not getting paid for um, that it's just become a habit for me to not expect any money. But if this podcast can, in some small way, help pay the bills, I'm more likely to keep on doing this into the future because I love this podcast and I want to keep it up. So thanks in advance if you're thinking about becoming a patron. Again, my site is patreon.com slash charlie. Well, thank you for bearing with me during that little infomercial. Now, it's time to get on to my talk with Josh Wilson. Josh has been doing a video series on YouTube called Mr. Wilson Presents. And Josh calls it infotainment, which I think is an apt description. He does teach you about music theory and composing, but he also takes the stuffiness out of it and makes some really fun videos. So I talk with Josh a little bit about these videos, including one where it's emulating speed painting, where he gave himself only 12 minutes to compose a piece. Josh also explains how he wrote a duet for two flutes, where the performers play off the same sheet of music, but one of the players is reading it upside down. Josh has joined the ranks of Mozart and Bach by doing this kind of complex composing. So I hope you stick around for the whole episode. Very informative. And Josh sure knows his stuff about musical form, too. So, 
on to my nerding out with Josh Wilson. Josh, it's a pleasure having you on Composer Quest. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, well, when did you first start getting into composing? I got into composing when I was about 14. I got a um, computer and uh, started uh, messing around with it. I discovered that you could take CDs and rip them onto your hard drive, and I was, I was fascinated by that. So I went around and uh, ripped all the CDs that I could find, and it didn't take long before I ran out of music. So um, instead of going to a record store like a normal kid would, I got some software to make uh, MIDI's and uh, set out making my own. So it happened kind of uh, a little bit by accident that way. Cool. So your video series, mm -hmm. uh, which you referred to as infotainment to me, <laughs> I like that. What got you inspired to start doing all these video episodes, kind of journaling your composing? Uh, a couple of years ago, I scored a little 30-second commercial spot, and later one of my friends came up to me and, and, and was making small talk and asked, well, how did you do that? And, well, y you know the enormity of that question, where do you even start? Like, there are these things called notes, and you put them on the page. I, I don't even know where to begin with that. So that came about partially as a response to that question. Um, I think everybody is more or less familiar with the way actors do their jobs and storytellers because they have a soapbox. Everybody's seen like the actor's studio and, and behind the scenes extras on, on DVDs and, and stuff like that. But it's not common, at least in my experience, to come across detailed explanations about how music actually gets made. So it seemed like a gap that I would be able to fill. Well, I think it's cool that your video blog has a sense of humor about classical music. Because mm -hmm. I feel like the classical composing world is seems like a very heady thing always. And Yeah, it gets a bad rap for being stuffy, but, you know, you, you, get, you get to know, like, the section players in, in your local uh, community band or whatever, and they're, they're just folks. They'll take you out for drinks and tell you stories and just like anybody else. Mm -hmm. One video that I really liked was your video you did for the video game track, the town theme. Oh, yeah, yeah. What I liked about that one was that you, as the music's going along, you have annotations about what you did with the form of the piece, like the keys and how they're related to the original key. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could play the town theme for the listeners and we'll hear your little annotations going along. Okay, yeah, this is a town theme for a video game. The, uh, the director asked me to write something in an 8-bit style. It starts in A major. This is some negative space. Mm -hmm. 
This is the initial expression of the subdominant. That's an unprepared common tone modulation. Now we're in F major. And this is uh, hemiola. It's in a two to three to nine to one ratio. This sounds like a distant modulation, but it's actually an allusion to the global tonic. It only sounds weird because we've come so far away from the tonic at this point. Back to A major to round this out. How much do you think about form as you're writing? Yeah, I do like to have a roadmap in my mind, if not on paper somewhere, uh, going into a piece. One thing I've found in writing for the video series, unlike in a concert setting where you can be reasonably assured that once the music starts, your audience isn't going to stand up and leave. But on the internet, that's not the case. There's very real chance that your audience is going to click away to something else. So that informs the form that I've ended up writing in, uh, just because you have to front load the form uh, with something interesting at the beginning. Yeah. It seems like you are very motivated by external challenges, like, for example, the composing quests, mm -hmm. which... You've done four quests already. I appreciate those quests, by the way. You're making me lazy, though. It uh, sometimes feels like all I have to do is uh, wait for uh, Charlie to put out an, a new quest and uh, go do that. <laughs> so you've also been, I've noticed, responding to challenges on Reddit, mm -hmm. like the, the subreddit Song a Week, mm -hmm. Yep. which I wasn't aware of, but that's cool. Now you know. Yeah, you should get in on that. Your listeners, too. It's uh, slash r slash song a week. And uh, they're issuing a different theme every week for 52 weeks. Cool. So it's, uh, you know, practice if you need it and uh, exposure if you don't. So Yeah. One challenge that I wanted to ask you about is the one where you were writing a piece in 17-8 time, mm -hmm. which I don't... That's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The challenge for that one was uh, a guy was doing an audition, a, a drummer was going out on auditions and he needed some drumless track to play along with and, and show off some technical skills. So uh, he, he requested specifically anything in a time signature other than 4-4 four, four, and, and I took that concept and, and ran with it and came up with 17-8. It's not as complicated as it looks. I, I wrote it that way 
to make it look exaggeratedly uh, complex. But it's 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 only five four and seven eight squashed together. You know, you add those up and you get seventeen eight. It sounds a lot like four four, but with a tiny little extra rhythmic value at the at the very tail end. So cool. And the cool thing is uh, another drummer, Zoltan Simon, mm-hmm. took mm-hmm. your track and actually recorded a drum part along with it. Yeah, that was awesome. He did a fantastic job on that. And uh, I-, I wish I had access to a-, a real drummer like that for every track. That was fantastic. I think that's one where I started at the beginning, put down a row of notes, and didn't put too much thought into it after that. That's a good strategy, too, though, sometimes, just to not think too hard, just put it out there. Mm-hmm. The other video I thought was interesting, um, your technique of speed writing music mm-hmm. uh, based on speed painting. and yeah. You just put a time limit on yourself and started composing started composing on paper and then decided to go with finale instead, right? Yeah. That's right. I was uh well, watching videos on on YouTube of folks using Photoshop to make fantastic pieces of graphic art. And it was it was time lapse so it happened really quickly and uh yeah, before that I remember speed painting was this entire thing. So I took that, I gave myself an arbitrary time limit. As I recall, it was the amount of time that it took my camera to stop recording, and I can get like 12 minutes on my camera. So it's completely arbitrary. And uh, yeah, like you said, I started on paper, but I, I, it didn't, didn't take me long to discover that my hand was what was slowing me down there, and it made it impossible to finish a piece. It took more time to actually write out the notes than I, I could afford. So yeah, switched to a computer. That's cool because it demonstrates all of the things that I normally talk about on my series. So instead of talking about this is how you write a melody or this is how I harmonize this thing, you you actually get to see that. I would go back and do that form again, except that it was really stressful the first time. So maybe some some other day. Oh, I I think you should because it's interesting getting a glimpse into your composing mind that way. Mm-hmm. And it seems like when we talk about composing, sometimes you're going through the filter of thinking about it like on a very high music theory level, or I don't know, you mm-hmm. you end up probably diluting the actual process by talking about what you did sometimes versus just seeing like what you actually write out in finale <laughs> mm-hmm. as you're thinking. Yeah, you make a good point. Uh, when we write program notes or commentary on a finished piece of music, we do that from a you know, relatively limited perspective of the writer who's gone through all of that, who's got all of that practice and, and training and so on. So the things that we choose to talk about when we write program notes are 
limited by that perspective. But in a format that allows you to show the entire process from beginning to end, you know, that, that gives the viewer the opportunity to decide which factors are important for them to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Another piece of yours that I thought was cool is your duet in F-sharp minor, mm -hmm. which was a response to the challenge to write something like Mozart did in Der Spiegel, which is a retrograde inversion, which is fancy composing language for just saying it's backwards and kind of flipped upside down Yep. if you're looking at a staff. Mm -hmm. Table music also, it's called, right? Like yep. if you were looking across from someone on a table and you're both reading the same piece of music, it would be playable both ways. Yep, that's right. As a duet. I really liked your piece you came up with, though, for two flutes. Yeah, like you say, the net effect is that if you have two performers sitting across from each other, they can look at the same piece of paper, read it from top to bottom, left to right, like you normally would, and uh, you get a, a finished piece of music. I was surprised at how consonant it sounded. There wasn't really, I mean, you obviously spent a lot of time on it, but mm -hmm. the harmonies and everything sounded very natural. Yeah, to make that work, I had to really, really pay attention to my voice leading. It's got to be invertible counterpoint, which means that every line, every phrase, every contour has to be some sort of a melody so that you can flip it back against itself. And you have to avoid certain intervals. In strict counterpoint, you have this thing with the sixths where certain kinds of sixths are allowed rising but not allowed falling. So I decided to just avoid six entirely in the melodic parts. And because there's only two voices, it gives me an opportunity to write in thirds, in parallel, a lot, which is kind of an easy way out. So it's cool because it's an exercise that anybody can replicate. And, and you know, I'd, I'd encourage your listeners to go out and give this a try. Yeah. Maybe we could listen to the first flute part by itself and then second flute part by itself and then the combination of the two okay this is my duet in f sharp minor uh, the first thing is the first flute with the page right side up
next thing is the second flute with the page turned upside down. And now here are both of those together. So, how long have you been teaching in Taiwan? Uh, five years. I took a, a degree in music education, and I graduated at exactly the wrong time in uh, 08, when everything was just going wobbly and pear-shaped. So, I looked for jobs in the States here first, and when that didn't work out, I had to cast a broader net. So, the place in Taiwan where I'm at now, that was the first place that gave me a serious offer. So, off I went. Cool. How would you say Taiwanese music has influenced your own music? One thing I've noticed, I've definitely moved away from modulation. When I was in the States working on projects in, in long form, I was very much into writers like Hindemith and writers exploring the new tonality, and that style lent itself toward constant modulation or refusal to settle in a tonic region. Uh, I, was, I was fascinated by that. So what I was writing at that time would be modulating within every, you know, four or five, six measures in an effort to keep the ball in, in the air, to so to speak. But uh, since I've been in East Asia, where the folk music, at least, 
and you'll hear the same influence in concert music in East Asia as well. Quite a lot of it is more conservative as far as exploring those tonal regions is concerned, and I think that's impacted the way I'm writing. Uh, I find myself writing a lot more pentatonic music. It's, it's weird. It's one of those things where I, I wouldn't have thought that I would go in that direction, but going to a different place and hearing it done well, seeing the strengths of that style, it makes me think it's, it's okay to write in uh, maybe a more conservative style with some of those scales. Fortune Cookie song again, just really beautiful. And Olive was a really good singer too. Yeah, she 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 was a star of that episode. I mean, I I I'd like to take credit, but uh, she really made that track come to life. Your finale MIDI renditions actually sound pretty good. I feel like you have a good sound library Mm. that you work with yeah i've gotten to a point where i think i've kind of got a handle on that i I shelled out for the uh east west quantum leap big package deal those are fantastic because those are all real samples and your choral synth that i heard in your symphony number two Mm -hmm. those sounded really good too and you Mm -hmm. had it actually singing the text. What is that? That was East-West Quantum Leap Symphonic Choir's Platinum, I think? Yeah. It's a really cool program. They took a choir and sampled every individual phoneme, every sound that a choir would typically make, which is mind-boggling on the surface of it because there are just so many possible combinations of voices and letter sounds and dynamics dynamics uh, yeah for all of them and jeez so what what you get in that sample library is is all of those and it comes with some cool software that combines those in in a way that you can approximate real singing with so Go check that out. That's been out there for a good long while by now, uh, a few years, I think. And there's a bunch of uh, demo videos on, on YouTube. If your audience wants to go take a look at that, that's called East-West Symphonic Choirs. Cool. So talking about your symphony number two, mm-hmm. I liked what I heard in that piece. And how did you approach that? Well, First of all, for a writer today to write a symphony, it's inevitable you're going to have to address the question, why in the world am I writing a symphony? Because if if you want to get played, it doesn't seem like the first choice. You'd be better off writing for, you know, film scores or 
commercials or TV or, well, like I'm doing for little, little videos on, on YouTube. In my mind, when I was considering writing that, I had gone through all of the forms that I had in front of me. I was writing piano sonatas and string quartets, and it came to a point at which, as far as my uh, like expressive voice, there was no place left to go other than the, the symphony. And at one point, I, I realized that I had a symphony in me, and I would be disappointed for the rest of my life if I knew that there was a symphony in me and I hadn't written it. So the, the second symphony that, that you heard, uh, the subtitle is uh, Apocalypse. It's based somewhat loosely on the Apocalypse of St. John the Divine. And for each section in the, the text of that work, I assigned one or more of my themes. The first thing you hear is the voice of St. John, and the angel takes and leads him and points out several of the things that are happening along the way. So the first thing is the, the voice of St. John. And then I also have a theme for the angel himself, which appears several times. This is the theme for the church, for the bride, for the host arrayed in white. This is the theme for the New Jerusalem. I took those as the same musical concept. And then here's the one that I thought you'd get a kick out of. This is the theme for a god. That's the subject from box the well-tempered clavier. Um, Ninja edit. Actually, it was the art of the fugue. I misspoke. Sorry. You hear the the subject, and it's inversion, just exactly the way that Bach used them. Cool. How do you go about actually coming up with the symphony? I mean, it's a pretty large piece of work. Mm-hmm. How do you? go about that without feeling overwhelmed? Uh, well, planning is the answer. The pre-writing process is easily as long as the actual writing process. Uh, if you were paying attention in, in your music history class, then you know what the symphony form is. 
there are four movements, right? The first movement is a sonata allegro. It has an exposition, a development, and a recapitulation. Within that, you have an introduction, the first theme group, followed by the second theme group, a transition into the development, which is slightly freer. Uh, the development is characterized by modulation, and you have episodes within that development, and then a retransition into the original key, which brings you back to the recapitulation, where you restate your two theme groups. Typically, you'll, you'll restate those in an abbreviated format because the audience already knows what they sound like. That comes to a terminal cadence in the original key, and that's very often followed by a coda. And then you have three more movements. There's a, um, a slow movement. There's a dance movement that's got a trio in it. And the last movement is a finale that's I don't know. I, I, I interpret the finale as, as a slightly more open form, but I think a rondo is a, a safe, historically informed choice for a finale movement. So that's an entire podcast episode all by itself. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I guess I probably learned about this, but I didn't think of it as being so laid out with each movement. Yeah, if you want to write like a Haydnian symphony or something in the style of Mozart, then you've got a, a very, very strict structure. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have any final thoughts for composers? Any words of wisdom? Well, let me say something that should be obvious. You have to practice. You don't expect the first thing that you write nor the tenth thing or the hundredth thing that you write to sound any good. Let me tell you, I have a collection of, gosh, it must be about 400 things sitting around, and of those, only uh, relatively very few of them have ever been released. How many of those 400 pieces or little snippets would you say are actually finished? Probably... I'd say about half, about 200. What keeps you motivated? Uh, like I said earlier about the symphony, it would be a darn shame knowing that I could do this thing, but that for whatever reason I haven't. That's the intrinsic motivating factor. Beyond that, it really, really, really helps to have a deadline. It helps to have people expecting a piece of music, whether that means performers waiting for you to finish pages or a DP waiting for a soundtrack. If you've got that deadline, you're going to release something, whether it's good or not. So getting used to writing under that kind of pressure with concrete deadlines with real consequences in the real world, that makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. Well, I really enjoy your video series and I hope it takes off for you because it's um it's quality infotainment <laughs> i think awesome I'm, I'm glad you like it and that's uh mr wilson presents dot go check it out guys thanks again josh for being on the podcast oh it's, it's fantastic doing this thanks for having me charlie thanks for joining me for this episode of composer quest with josh wilson all the music in this episode was composed by josh including that awesome custom Composer Quest intro. If you heard something you like, 
I have links to all of Josh's music in the show notes at composerquest.com slash Wilson. You can stay in touch with me either by emailing me, charlie at composerquest.com, or finding ComposerQuest on Twitter or Facebook. And now I'll leave you with one of Josh's new 8-bit pieces called Wait For It.